0: All right, let's go ahead and begin reading in verse number four. The Word of God says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs, meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints, and do minister we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he sware by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of uh, promise the immutability of His counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge, to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil." whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, we need to remember tonight as we jump into these verses that we are finishing what we began last week at the end of the lesson. We are coming into the the, the last two-thirds of this parenthetical warning that the Apostle Paul is giving to these Jewish readers that would have been reading uh, the book of Hebrews. Now, we talked about how there were five warnings throughout the book of Hebrews and how that uh, as we read through the book of Hebrews, each of these can be digested uh, on the whole as standing alone, Uh, but they uh, are, of course, meant to expand on the greater context that surrounds them. And so one of the good exercises we have advised people to do uh, is read through sometime, jot down these references, read through the book book of Hebrews and intentionally skip over those five parenthetical passages, then go back, read those five passages each in one setting, then go back and read it all together as a whole. And it really changes the way that you view the book of Hebrews. It galvanizes in your mind the fact that these parenthetical passages exist and what their intent and meaning is. Now, as he has uh, come through these various passages, what he is speaking about in this particular parenthetical warning is he is encouraging them not to disregard the Son of God, not to turn away from Christ. And he has pointed to three different groups of people. We talked about last week, as we closed out, that he wrote a warning to those who are weak. And we looked at that through verse verse number 11 down to verse number 3 of uh, chapter number 6, from verse 11 in chapter 5 down to verse number 3 in chapter 6. This week, I want us to look at two more groups of people. Uh, what we've read here in verses 4 to 8, these difficult passages, are written to those who are wicked. Now, when we say those who are wicked, what we mean by that is those who have never truly been born again, but they have heard the truth of the gospel and they have chosen to turn and to walk away from. And we're going to expand on that a whole lot more. But from verse number 9 down to the end of the chapter, at verse number 20, he begins to talk to those who are wise. And what we mean by that is those who know the Lord as their Savior. Now, these verses that we've read, there are a lot of various opinions about it. A lot of people that believe a person can lose their salvation we'll run to these chapter, these verses in this chapter of the book of Hebrews to point to, to say, see, it's saying that uh, we can, uh, you know, be enlightened, we can taste of the heavenly gift, we can be partakers of the Holy Ghost, we can taste the good Word of God and the powers of the world to come and still fall away and die and go to hell. And I would say this to you tonight, that is true, that we can do all of those things and still die and go to hell. But if we carefully examine what's being said here, particularly in the context of the book of Hebrews, I think we're going to realize that the portrait before us in these verses is not somebody who's been genuinely born again, and then they've lost their salvation. There's a lot of reasons we know that's not true, first and foremost, because the rest of the Bible refutes it, amen, but also because as we examine each of these statements, we get a clear definition of them, and I believe that reveals to us who exactly these people are, Now I want you to think with me about a few things this evening. Number one, I want you to think with me, with these people, about the full enlightenment that they had experienced. And these are the verses I think people struggle with. Look at verses four and five again. The Bible says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. And then, of course, it goes on, verse six, they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance. Now, what is he talking about here? Remember, he's speaking to Jewish individuals. And we talked about how that the, the setting, the environment, the circumstances of these readers, these are Jews who are at the door. They might be Jews who are standing there deciding whether they're going to accept Christ. They might be Jews who have accepted Christ newly. They've just been born again, uh, but they've not grown in the Lord. Or it might be Jews who were born again many years ago, but never left the door. They still clung to many of the old things that they had clung to, and they never grew in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would say this, that even for Gentiles in this day of grace, there are people that are in that situation. We just had Easter service yesterday, and it was wonderful. What a wonderful Easter service, and we had a great crowd here. And no doubt there were people there that were there because they were asked to be there, which is a good thing. I'm not saying that's bad. You ought to always invite people to come to church. And, of course, when we invite people, we invite them hoping they will come to church. But, I mean, there were probably people that were there because Mama wanted them to be there, there because, you know, Mama wanted them to be there, there because their, their spouse or their child or whoever it might have been wanted them to be there, who at no other time are ever in church and they have never truly accepted Christ as their Savior. Uh, there are Gentiles who are standing right at the door, too, who have not uh, given their heart and life to Christ. They've not accepted the Lord, but they're standing there at the door. Churches are full of people who have been saved for a lot of years, but have never grown in the Lord. I think a lot of the foolishness that goes on in a lot of churches is due directly to that. Uh, people who, they know the Lord, they've known Him for years, but they've never grown in their walk with the Lord. They're still babes in Christ. And then, of course, every good church and growing church ought to have some people that have accepted the Lord, who have uh, just newly received Christ, and they've not grown very much. So even to Gentiles, there's an application. But particularly as we consider this Jewish individual who would be reading the book of Hebrews, he has 1,500 years of the Old Testament Levitical system at his back. He has the cross of Calvary right in front of him. And he has a choice that he must make. Now, once we consider that as the context, I want you to think about a few of these things. Number one, think about the fact that they had seen the truth. Verse number four, it says, those who were once enlightened. In other words, the person reading this, has been they've come face to face with the truth of Calvary. They are not ignorant to the fact that Christ has come. They are not ignorant to the fact that he has died in humanity's place. They're not ignorant to the fact that he has come to take away the old covenant and establish the new covenant. You say, well, preacher, how would we know that? Well, they've read the first five chapters of this book. They're not ignorant of that. And of course, when they read this, we have it thankfully and, and, and wonderfully divided into chapters and verses. But when they read it, it would have been as one epistle. And if they've gotten this far in the epistle, they've already had this revealed to them that Christ has died for their sins, that He's the Son of God, that He has come to die in their place. So we're not talking about people that have never heard the truth. They had seen the truth. They had been faced with it. Notice not only had they seen the truth, but they had savored the truth. Look at the end of verse number 4. It said, and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. Now, let's take each of those phrases carefully. The Bible says, have tasted of the heavenly gift. does not say they have, have received the heavenly gift, but they have tasted of the heavenly gift. Well, what is the heavenly gift? I believe it's speaking about Christ dying for their sins. And you say, well, what does that mean, preacher? Well, I believe personally, and there'll probably be people disagree with me, but what it means is they had observed Calvary and they had acknowledged and seen that God had given to humanity a great and mighty gift through Christ. They had seen that and they had seen it personally revealed in their life. You've got to remember, when Paul writes this, many of the people that he would have been writing to would have been alive when Christ was crucified. They would have known these things. And I believe when it says that they had tasted it, I believe it's speaking about two things. Number one, they tasted its spiritual character. They tasted the heavenly gift. But then number two, this is where a lot of people get hung up. The Bible says, and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. A lot of people struggle with that phrasing, but I believe it says exactly what it's supposed to say. It does not say they were made possessors of the Holy Ghost. It says they were made partakers. Now, the first function of the Holy Ghost in the life of a sinner is to convict him of sin. And the people that he's writing to, he's speaking about a class of people, maybe not everyone he's writing to, but he's saying there's a group of people out there that they know the truth of Christ, they realize Christ died for them, and they have been convicted and convinced of their sin that they need Christ. We see people like this all the time in society today. Uh, in fact, we have people right now that are on my heart that I've been praying for, and I've got, I've, there's people in this room that. It's not unusual for them to come up to me on a Sunday and say, hey, did that person who raised their hand, did they ever accept Christ? And we've had people, uh, several in fact lately, that uh, have raised their hand, acknowledged they're a sinner, and walked out the door lost. They have already tasted of the Holy Ghost. They've already partook of the Holy Ghost in the sense that they have been convicted of their lost condition. That's the first and chief and primary work of the Holy Ghost on this earth, is to convict of sin, to convince the world of sin. In fact, you'll find the only time the word conviction is found in your Bible, it's not actually even the word conviction, it's the word convicted. It's in John chapter number 8 with the uh, woman taken in adultery. Whenever Christ uh, knelt down, wrote in the sand, and the Bible says they were all convicted in their hearts. What, what does conviction mean? It means to convince us of our sinful state. For the lost person, it means to convince them, and this is a spiritual work that must take place, to convince them that they need Christ. I remember, you know, I was raised in church. I was raised in a good church. Preached the Word of God, preached the gospel. And uh, I was raised in children's ministries, you know, all the time when I was young. And and because we were faithful to the house of God, I wasn't just in children's ministries. I was also in, in, you know, the main service and stuff. There ain't no telling how many thousands of times I had been told growing up that if you've not accepted Christ, you're a sinner on your way to hell. I've been told it plenty of times. Uh, If you had asked me as an academic fact, Toby, do you believe this? As a young boy, I would have said, yes, I believe that. In fact, my little boy, one of the things we're doing right now is trying to to drive in his mind certain spiritual truths and ideas that when we do wrong, that's sin and that displeases the Lord and uh, that the Lord loves us and that Christ died for us. And we're trying to place all those things in his heart and mind. But the reality is on December 1st, 1997, I was convicted by the Holy Ghost and shown that I needed to be saved. It's actually instructive that the Lord did it in such a way in my life. Maybe He knew, in fact, I know He knew, that one day I'd stand behind a pulpit and preach to people. And I I firmly believe He wanted in my mind this understanding that you can preach and preach and preach and preach, but unless a person lets the Holy Ghost work in their heart, they won't be convicted or convinced of their sinful condition. I was by myself when I got saved. And I don't say that to brag. There ain't nothing to brag about. It was Jesus that saved me, not me. But I say that to emphasize this. There wasn't anybody standing there with a Bible in their hand saying, see this, Toby, this shows you that you're a sinner. I already knew. I knew it in my head. But I had to be convinced and convicted in my heart. And only the Holy Ghost can make a person realize they're lost and realize what that means. This is what he's speaking about. Now, by the same token, on December 1st, 1997, I made a choice. The Lord showed me I was a lost sinner. And if I had wanted to, I could have said, No, Lord, I do not want to be saved and turned around and walked away. And I would have been a partaker of the Holy Ghost in that God had convicted me. But I would not have been a possessor of the Holy Ghost if I had turned and walked away and not accepted Christ. I believe that's who Paul is pointing to in this passage. They have tasted the spiritual character of the truth, but notice also they had tasted its spiritual content. Notice the next phrase. It says they've tasted the good word of God. Now, this was true for all Jews in particular. Uh, The Bible says that unto them was committed the oracles of God. The word of God had been given primarily to the Jewish people ever since the beginning of time. But he's even, I believe, going a step farther. He's saying, you have tasted this, and you know, to taste something, that's something personal, right? I, I mean, I, I'm reminded a lot of times, my, my wife, she, when she cooks, a lot of times she doesn't salt things. And the reason is because she understands some people like a lot of salt, some people like a little bit of salt, and she says people just need to salt to their own personal taste. Now, you may do it differently, that's fine, but that's the way she does it. That way people can choose how much they want in their dish. The reason she does that is because taste is a personal matter. You might taste something and say, man, that's too much salt. I might taste it and say, man, that's not enough salt. My daddy, he loves pepper. All all I can remember growing up is dad had a pepper, uh, a special pepper shaker. There was the family pepper shaker, and then he had a pepper shaker, okay? And his, I mean, his had like, like, you know, holes in it, like the, the, like a post hole digger would dig, you know? Because he wanted that pepper to come out, man. And he'd eaten, to this day, he'll eat pepper on anything. I think I've seen him put it on ice cream before. I can't swear to that, but I think I have. You see, it's a matter of personal taste. And I believe what he's saying is this. Listen, you've not just by virtue of being a Jew tasted the Word of God, but you personally have been presented with this truth. The Word of God has been delivered unto you. Now, remember, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And all these things are going to be important as we get a little bit further down. But he says you have tasted the, the spiritual content, the perfection of the Word of God. Uh, but notice not only the perfection of the Word of God. I just saw a typo in my notes. But notice, too, the powers of the world to come. Notice what he says, the powers of the world to come. Obviously, he's talking about supernatural power. And I believe there are two ways in which the reader would have observed those. One, they would have observed them if they had enough age on them in that they would have seen the earthly ministry of Christ and the early ministry of the apostles when so many miracles would have been being done. No doubt they had personally seen some of these things take place. But even beyond that, you have to remember that in the days after the ascension of Christ, some 8,000 Jews, north of 8,000 Jews, had placed their faith in the risen Savior and had had their lives radically transformed. What he's saying is this, you've seen God work. You're not ignorant to this. You've seen God do mighty things, both in the world, but also in the believer. These other people that have placed their life in Christ, you have seen God move and God work. Now, we talked about their full enlightenment, and here's why this is important. I want you to notice the fearful enmity that's coming. Look at verse number six. If they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themse- to themselves the Son of God afresh and put Him to an open shame. Now remember, he's, he's talking about people who know the truth of Christ, people that have been convicted by the Holy Ghost, people that understand God sent His Son to die for them, people that have read the Word of God and know the Word of God, and people that know that Christ is powerful to save. And he says this, if you walk away from that, there's no other place for you to go. That word where he says fall away, we get our word apostasy from that. And he's talking about people apostatizing. Very likely, many of these people that he would have been writing to may have even made professions of faith, though they had never genuinely put their their soul in Christ's care. They had never really put their trust in Christ. And he's saying to them essentially this. And this is what a lot of people struggle with. They look at this verse and they say, Is this saying a person can be saved and then fall away and then they can't be saved again? Let me say number one that I don't know of a single denomination that believes that you can lose your salvation, that believes you can't get it back again. Isn't that always interesting? It's always interesting that the same people that will run to this verse to say, see, you can fall away, are the very same people that every time they commit a sin, they go down to an altar and ask Jesus to save them all over again. And I'm not talking about just people that struggle with their salvation. Listen, I went through a period of time when I was a teenager, I struggled with my salvation. It's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about whole denominations built around this idea of sinless sanctification, that you have to do good things to be saved, and that if you're good enough, that secures your salvation. None of those people, even though they'll point to this verse, none of them talk about it too much, because it would also point out for them, if that's the interpretation of it, it would suggest that they wouldn't have the opportunity to trust Christ again. So this is not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's saying this. If you've been given all that, and if that's not good enough, there's nowhere else to turn. I'm reminded of what uh, Abraham told the rich man in hell. You remember? He said, I have five brethren, and would you please send someone back to share the the truth of God with them? He said, if someone rose from the dead, they would believe. Abraham said, no, they won't believe even if one rose from the dead. They have the law and the prophets. Let them hear them. What he's saying is there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to turn. Notice that there is an unavoidable implication. You've either accepted Christ or you've not accepted Christ. There's no middle ground on this matter. And so if none of those things are good enough and you turn and walk away, then there's nowhere else to turn. And he says this, to renew them again unto repentance. Now, here's what I believe he's saying, and you might disagree with this. But I believe he's saying this. There's nothing more to be convicted about. There's nothing. If that won't get you to repent, nothing's going to get you to repent. He's saying that initial work of conviction that took place, that there's nothing more to find out. If you you realize you're lost and that's not good enough for you to come to Christ, nothing will be good enough. If you realize God sent his son to die for you and that's not good enough, nothing will be good enough. And why is this so? We see an unavoidable implication and an unconditional impossibility. But notice that there is an unpardonable impiety. In other words, here's why that would be impossible. And he lists two things. He says, first off, you would be uh, crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh and putting Him to an open shame. Many of these people had personally shared in the crucifixion. They recognize that Christ died for them. So if that's not good enough, what are they expecting? Christ to die for them a second time? What are they asking? For him to go through Calvary again? If the first crucifixion wasn't enough, then no man, no number of crucifixions would be enough. And the reason is because they put him to an open shame. To suggest that after all that had been presented to you, that that was not enough, would be to claim that what Christ did was not enough. We know, of course, from the Word of God that after He died for our sins, made Himself an offering for sins once for all, He sat down on the right hand of the Father. I might say this, that in the manner of suffering in place of sinners, in the manner of crucifixion, in the manner of becoming sin for humanity, God's done all He's going to do. You either accept that or you die lost. One of the two. There's nothing more to do. There's nothing more to give. There's nothing more. Now, I'm glad, you know, listen, God definitely made Himself known in my life. But remember, God had made Himself known in their life, too. Listen, I'm glad that the Word of God was preached to me and the gospel was given to me. Certainly, I couldn't have been saved if somebody hadn't given me the gospel. But remember, the Word of God has been preached to them. I'm glad the Holy Ghost came to me and convicted me of my sin as a 10-year-old boy and showed me. I wouldn't have known I was lost if He hadn't showed me I was lost. But remember, the Holy Ghost has already convicted them. I'm glad that there were people in my life that showed me by their life, by their testimony, that God was powerful to save, that He was not limited, that He could save a 10-year-old boy and change His life. Maybe I wouldn't have come to Christ if I had thought maybe He won't be able to save me. There were people that showed me the powers of the world to come. Remember, somebody had showed them the powers of the world to come. So the people that are in view here, these are not people that have never heard the gospel. These aren't people that have never realized they're a sinner. These are people that have been fully convinced they're a sinner. They've been convicted by the Holy Ghost. They know the truth of Christ. They know that that God's able to save them. They know the Word of God. It's been preached to them. And they've deliberately chosen to turn and to walk away and say, I'm not interested in that. And I don't believe what Paul is saying here is you can't go back to the Lord. I don't believe that's what he's saying. I believe he's saying there's nowhere for you to go but to the Lord. If you won't accept that, there's nothing that will satisfy you. Let me give you an example here. We see not only their full enlightenment and their fearful enmity, but notice their final end. And I believe this, and I'll, I'll be honest with you, I struggle with these next two verses for years, but I believe this is the most clear, powerful representation of what the apostle's talking about that we could find. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it, and bringeth forth herbs meat for them by whom it is dressed, receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. Notice first off that both of these types of soil, there's a preparation to the soil that's taking place. And this is what we might talk about is spoken of back in verses 4 and 5. The preparation. He's drawing an analogy between the heart of the sinner and the heart of the soil. And he's saying, listen, the same way that uh, a person works the soil and prepares it, it's something I need to be doing right now. If, if the rain would let up a little bit, we've got our garden, has been turned, it's been dis, but I need to get out there and till it. But it takes work if you're going to see any anything grow. Uh, we even last year, we had a few, you know, when you buy seeds, I don't know, man, you go down to the Mayo or the co-op and they think you're going to plant out like 50 acres of, of something. You can either buy a packet with like four seeds in it, or you can buy a bag with like four pounds in it. And so we were going to do two rows of, uh, of half white runner beans and, or white half runner beans. And, uh, so we got a, a big bag of the beans. We needed that many. And I wound up with a ton of them left over. And so when I had those left over, I thought, well, what am I going to do with them? So I've got some pasture land beside me. I thought, well, I'll just throw them over there. They'll either die or they'll grow or whatever. And I threw them over there. And not long after that, you began to see they would spring up a little bit, but pretty soon the weeds choked them out. You know why? That ground hadn't been prepared for it. Now, it's true, something might occasionally grow in the wild, but by and large, you have to cultivate land. And he's pointing to the fact that the events in verses 4 and 5 had cultivated their hearts. God had done everything that could be asked to show them that He loved them, that He died for them, that they need to be saved, and how they could be saved. Both of these types of ground have been prepared. But there's two different types of ground here, remember? He talks about in verse 7, "...that ground which bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed." But look down at verse number 8, we see not only the preparation of the soil, but the produce of the soil. There was worthwhile produce. Look at verse number 8, there was worthless produce. The Bible says, But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. You know what he's essentially saying? He's saying this, If all there is is just weeds and thorns and briars, then that's all that's ever going to be there. Now, that sounds dismal, right? That sounds hopeless. But remember, he's talking about those that have been faced with all of these wonderful, splendid truths that God has been given. And he's essentially saying this. If after all that, all they put forth is thorns and briars and cursing, then that's all they're ever going to put forth. God's done everything that could be asked. I remember when I was a 15-year-old boy and I'd been struggling with my salvation. I remember laying in bed and I was struggling with it one night, and I was crying out to the Lord, and I was discouraged, I was frustrated, I was crying. And I remember in God this night, and I don't know what day of the week it was or what date on the calendar, but I remember this moment distinctly in my mind when God settled my salvation. Uh, I, I, in frustration, and I don't even know that I realized how profound what I was saying was. Here's a good lesson. If I ever say anything profound, it's probably been on accident, Okay. <laughs> And uh, so I I didn't even realize how profound what I was about to say was. But in frustration, I said, Lord, I've done everything you've asked me to do. If I die and go to hell, it's your fault. You know, 15-year-old kids, they say dumb things. But it was like God clicked on the light switch in my mind. And I realized, and I remember in my mind saying it over to myself. Lord, I've done everything you've asked me to do. And if I die and go to hell, it's your fault. And it was like it clicked in my mind. Hey, I've done everything He's asked me to do. If I die and go to hell, it's His fault. Now, we know that God's faithful. And I understood in that moment that I had done what God had asked of me. I had placed my soul in His care. And it settled in my heart that there was no no amount of praying or crying or struggling or whatever. That's not what secures my salvation. What secures my salvation is the faithfulness of the promise of God. God had said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And on December 1st, 1997, I had called upon the name of the Lord and He saved me. I'd done everything I could. We might say this, that this is the flipping of the script of that concept. God's saying to this individual, I've done everything I can do to save you. And if that's not enough for you to put your trust in me, there's nothing more that can be done. He's pointing to the danger that these individuals are in, and certainly they're in danger. And we have people today, no doubt, probably people that come into our church sometimes, that they, they know the truth. They know they need to be saved. They know that they need to trust Christ. But they refuse to do so. And unless they change their mind... There's nothing else to be done for them. All you can do is preach the gospel. All you can do is present them with truth. But it's their choice and decision whether they'll they'll accept Christ. So he points to those who are wicked. Now, I want you to notice this, and and, uh, we've got a little ways. I was going to say we'll close with this, and we will, but we've got a little ways to go in it. Uh, Look down at verses 9 through 20. He gives a word to those who are wise. Now, this is encouraging. Look at verse number 9. He says, But, beloved... We are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. He's saying essentially to them, I know that's terrifying. I know that there are people in that condition. I know no doubt there may be some people who will read this that are in that very condition of those verses that we just read. But he's saying this, that's not my hope saying, I'm trusting that there will be better things come out of your life. I'm trusting. Now, remember, and one of the things that will help you as you read through Paul's epistles, Paul never took anyone's personal spiritual state for granted. Paul never took anybody's personal spiritual state for granted. Unless he had personally won them to Christ and seen the evidence of God in their life, Paul always left room for the fact that somebody might read this letter that wasn't saved. It's a good encouragement to me as a preacher to always remember, you may be preaching to the church. It may be Wednesday night or it may be Monday night of Apollo's course, but that don't mean there can't be lost people in the room. And so he never takes for granted that. And sometimes I think we look at... Paul's statements, and we think, well, that's ambiguous. And the reason is because we want it to speak directly and solely and only to us. But the reality is that there's going to be lost people that are going to be faced with the truth of the Word of God, just like there are saved people. Thank the Lord, lost people do occasionally hear the Word of God. So Paul does not (laughs) necessarily take that for granted. And so he's listed all these things, and certainly there were people in that day and in this day that fell into that category. But he says this, I trust concerning you that this is not the situation. He says, I know we're talking about this, and it may be true, but he says, I trust that in your life you have truly accepted the Lord. And as such, he points to a few things that will be evident. He points to the fruit of salvation, which should be clearly discerned in our life. In verse number 9, this fact is declared. Look at it again. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. He tells us this, that our walk with the Lord will be accompanied by some things. In other words, when the Lord saves a man, he changes his life. Now, that doesn't mean that he's always going to do everything perfect or just right. If you believe a a Christian is always going to live perfectly, just hang around some of us every now and then. You'll find out that's not true. Of course, people do things that are wrong. I would say this, that you ought to, though, if you spend any amount of time around somebody, you ought to be able to see some kind of God in their life. You ought to be able to see the Lord evident in their life in some way, shape, fashion, or form. And he says there are things that accompany salvation. Notice number two, the fruit is described. He says in verse number 10, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. There's two things I would point to here. One is this. Paul is not suggesting that God is going to save them because they've done good works. He's merely reminding them that though he is writing these things, and though there may be some people that have never accepted the Lord, that don't have any spiritual fruit in their life, if they do have spiritual fruit in their life, God is aware of it, and others are aware of it. And that's what he means when he says God's not un- unrighteous to forget your uh, your work and labor of love. I remember talking to somebody one time that was struggling with their salvation. I knew this young man for a lot of years, and uh, had been friends with him, and I'd seen God work in his life, but... He was dealing with what a lot of young people that are saved at a young age deal with. Uh, and this is sort of the same thing that I dealt with when I was younger, which is that, you know, he didn't have any kind of big earth-shattering conversion experience. Especially you get in church and you hear people talking, you know, and, and, and I think people ought to rejoice in their salvation. Amen? I, I don't think there's anything wrong with being a trophy of grace. But sometimes you hear people talking about their salvation. They'll say, well, you know, bless God, I was a, I was a drunkard for, you know, 30 years, and I did awful things, and I drowned kittens, and I, I kicked people, and, you know, I this, that, and the other. I did all these horrible, awful, wretched, wicked things, and then one day a light shined down from heaven and kicked me off of my high horse, and it was like I could hear the earth shattering and all this, and I knelt down and I confessed my sins to the Lord, and I got up, and it was like the angels were singing, and ever since that... that... That day, God's been surreal and present in my life. And when I walk through the house, I can hear Him whisper sweet peace to me. And that's all wonderful. And I believe that's true for them. Guess what? When I was saved, I was 10 years old. I hadn't been drowning no kittens. I hadn't been drinking for 30 years. I hadn't been kicking no puppies. I, I was basically a good kid. For me, the difference that Christ made in my life was not from where I was to where He took me, but from where I was to where I am today to where I could be. I look at other people that's raised in the same situation I was in whose lives are a mess. I look at it and say, man, but for the grace of God, go I. I could be in that situation. I could have made that kind of mess of my life. And so a lot of times, young people saved in church, you know, that's one of the things they struggle with. And I was talking to this young man, and he was was telling me, he said, you know, I just, I worry, you know, that I didn't say the right words. I worry that I didn't pray the right way. I I worry that maybe I just, maybe I didn't mean it. And, you know, you've heard people say things like this before. And this is what I told this young man. Now, listen, you'd have to be careful with this advice. You'd have to really know somebody and and know that you're speaking truth. You don't want to give someone a false assurance. But this is what I told him. I said, let me tell you something. I, I said his name. I said, I don't know that you're saved because you prayed a prayer 10 years ago. I said, I know you prayed a prayer because you're saved. Now, again, we have to be cautious with that advice. I understand that. But what I was saying is this, man, I've seen God work in your life, and you've seen God work in your life. And whether you said the words that somebody else would have said or whether you understood this point or that point, it's evident to me because of Christ in your life that you had placed your faith in the Lord. I I think here's what we need to understand is that people will make mistakes, people will do things wrong, people will mess up, people will get out of the will of God. I believe that. I, I don't I don't believe in this idea of perseverance of the saints, meaning that if a person gets saved, they're never going to get out of the will of God. I've read too much Bible to believe that. I've read too much about Abraham, I've read too much about Isaac, I've read too much about Jacob, I've read too much about David, I've read too much about Solomon, I've read too and you say, Well, that's all Old Testament preachers. They didn't have the Holy Ghost. Hey, I've read too much about the Apostle Paul. There came a time in Paul's life when the Holy Ghost said, don't go to Jerusalem. He said, I'm going to Jerusalem. And his life was a mess after that. Now, thankfully, the Lord used him, but God really had to hem him in to get his attention. So, sure, people get out of the will of God. Peter got out of the will of God. Of course, people get out of the will of God. Of course, people backslide. I know backsliding is an Old Testament term, but guess what? Human nature is what it is, and people walk away from God sometimes. That's the reality of it. And just because you go through a backslidden condition, that doesn't mean that you weren't saved. But when you see a person who's been walking this earth for 50, 60 years and there's never been a single sign of God in their life anywhere, they they don't go to church and it don't bother them. They don't pray and and it don't bother them. They don't read their Bible and don't bother them, you know. They live however they want to and that doesn't trouble them in any way, shape, fashion, or form. I struggle believing that they have accepted the Lord. Because I believe when any man is in Christ, I believe he's a new creature in Christ Jesus. And old things are passed away and all things are become new. That doesn't mean that he won't sometimes revel in the old things. But the things that are new will be truly new. They'll be different. And God will change a man's life. So I think he's saying here uh, in this passage that uh, there's been evidence of God in your life. And he's saying, though I have written these things, though that is true, don't let that derail you if you do know the Lord. Uh, the Lord knows you. Amen? Even times when we are afraid that we don't know Him, He still knows us if we placed our faith in Christ. So he talks about the fruit of our salvation. It should be con- uh, clearly evident and clearly uh, discerned in our lives. Look at verse 11 and 12. He says the fruit of salvation should be continually developed in our lives. Verse number 11, he says this, And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Number one, he shows them how to improve in their walk with the Lord. He says you need to show diligence to the full assurance of the hope unto the end. Now, you've got to remember, again, he's talking to Jewish individuals who are entrenched all around them is the workings of the Old Testament law. And what he's saying is this. He's saying, listen, if you want to grow in the Lord, don't go back to that. Be diligent to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Don't waver. Don't go back to the old ways and the old works. He says, if you want to grow in the Lord, you just keep on the path that you're on. Uh, you know, I was telling, uh, I think, my father-in-law a story last night. And some of these names may not mean anything to you, but I, I was uh, listening to uh, a fellow by the name Tony Hudson. He was telling a story one time and uh I'm sure some of you know who Harold Seitler is Dr. Seitler, you know, and uh he said one time he went to the hot, to or to the uh airport or somewhere pick up Dr. Seitler, who was going to come preach a meeting for it, and said that uh they were riding in the car. And Dr. Sotler looked at him, and, and he had a real rough, gravelly voice, you know, and he said, uh, he "Said Brother Tony, what, uh, what time are the meetings each night this week? And he said, well, Dr. Sotler, we're going to meet at 6 o'clock. And he said, oh, no, son, uh, don't meet at 6 o'clock. Everybody's going to 6 o'clock. They're all compromising. They're all doing away with the 7 o'clock meeting. Don't you do that. They're just doing that so that people can get out earlier. They're just doing that to cater to the flesh. Don't do that. Doctor or Brother Tony Hudson said, "Well, Doctor Seiler, we've always, ever since I started the church, met at six o'clock. We've always done that." He said, "Well, don't you change it from six o'clock? Don't you compromise for anybody, Brother Tony? You just keep on going six o'clock. You just keep, you stay faithful to the Lord." And he said, "The lesson I took away from that, I guess, was just whatever you're doing, just to keep a doing it for the Lord, you know." And uh, while I know that's sort of tongue in cheek, and there's some humor there. I do believe what the Apostle Paul is saying to these readers is this. Listen, if you started out walking with Christ, don't fall away from that. Don't fall away from that. Not that you'll lose your salvation, but if you really want to grow in the Lord, stay faithful with the Lord. And, you know, we've got every, every year there's hundreds of books come out to teach churches how to do everything right. It's funny, you know, the, the liberal crowd has been writing church growth books for the past 40 years. Wouldn't you think if their books worked, we wouldn't still be writing them? You know, I mean, the very people and the sad reality is this. A lot of that church growth crowd, a lot of their books and philosophies destroyed once thriving churches. And now after they've destroyed those churches, they go to the second generation of pastor and say, hey, you want to grow your church? Buy our book. You know, the truth of the matter is this. You know, how the work of God is done. Through preaching the word of God faithfully, the whole counsel of God, through praying both personally and corporately as a church through sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ on a steady, patient, consistent basis, and through constant growth and fellowship one with another. That's how. Uh, there's no secret remedies. There's no secret ingredients, no 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 kernel secret recipe, all right? The truth is, what God told us would work will work. It just may not work in one day, but it will work if we'll stay faithful to it. And this is true in our personal spiritual walk, too. We want to grow in the Lord. Listen, don't give up on those things that God's called us to do. You stay faithful with Him, and you will grow. He points to how to improve, but then He points to whom to imitate. He says that you be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Now, of course, ultimately our our goal, ultimately our, our uh you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? The uh, the person we want to emulate, the person we want to be like, the person we want our life to be molded after is Christ. He's our role model. That's the phrase I was using. He, he He's our role model. But Paul points to the fact that they are not the first group of people to go through this experience where they have trusted the Lord and then been met, been met with tribulations and trials and difficulties. They're not the first people to give their hearts and lives to the Lord and and then struggle in the midst of walking with the Lord. And he, he says, listen, you need to pick people out who have, who have done the work of Christ and you need to try to model your life to some degree after them. Now, again, this is one of those things, everybody, nobody likes this. Everybody says, well, you know, we ought not put men on a pedestal. Hey, listen, I'm, I, I agree with that. We shouldn't put men under the pedestal or over the on a pedestal. But every once in a while, we should put them under the microscope and see what makes them tick and find out if maybe there's some things in their life that work. Uh, I was talking to someone the other day. We were talking about real estate and uh, investing and property management and that kind of stuff. And... Uh, I was talking to this individual, you know, about some things, and he said, you know how I learned what I've learned? He said, it seems like the people that are successful at this, they find someone else that's successful and do what they did. We have a bad habit of wanting to take all of the responsibility of original thought upon ourselves. Instead of looking at other people who have done it and saying, man, I'm going to stand on their shoulders and I'm going to do what they've done. One of the reasons I have in my home study hundreds of books, I don't know how many, more than I'll ever read, I'm sure, but I've got hundreds of books there. At the end of the day, there's only one book that I need, and that's this book right here. But why do I have all those? Well, every time that I sit down and read someone else's book, I have their entire life of experiences at my disposal that I can read and absorb, and I don't have to go learn the lessons they learned through experience. I can learn them by reading that book. It's not that they're necessary by any means. It's not that I couldn't preach if I didn't have commentaries and things like that. Of course I could. The only book you have to have uh, is the Word of God. But why, if God's given us those resources, will we turn our back on them, if they could help us to walk in the Lord? And I think that as not speaking about books necessarily, but I think the Apostle Paul is speaking about individuals, and he's saying find people that have walked in the Lord and try to emulate their life. Or in other words, as he said in another place, he said, follow us, follow me as I follow Christ. If I ever depart from the Lord, don't follow me. But as long as I'm following the Lord, learn what you can from me and grow in the Lord. Now, I want you to notice there's an exhortation. That's what we've looked at these first uh, verses here. But notice there's an expectation that that individual can have this person that has placed their faith in Christ and they're coming up against difficulties and trials, there's something they can expect from God. And I believe in a greater sense, this is who he is pointing to. Or he's going to give them an example of what he means. He's just said, you know, uh, in verse number 12, uh, you know, don't be slothful. Be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And I think he's going to give them an example here in verses 13 through 20. I want you to look. Let's let's read these verses. We've got enough time to read them. Verse number 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, surely blessing I will bless thee and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil, whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He's saying this, Stay faithful, continue to follow God. And as you do that, the Lord will grow you in your walk with Him. You'll get closer to the Lord. You'll get confidence. You'll get boldness. You'll enjoy your salvation. And He's saying if you need any proof of that, look at Abraham. He says that Abraham, after he had endured for many years, received a word from God that helped him and that sort of buoyed his faith throughout the rest of his life. Notice, first off, the significance of this word of promise, or we'll use the word pledge. It was a significant pledge in verses 13 through 15. He points to Abraham and he says that there was a pledge that was pronounced true in his life. Uh, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself. Now, he, what he's talking about is in Genesis chapter number 22. And he's talking about after Abraham had offered Isaac. And after Abraham had done this, which, by the way, was the greatest moment of testing in Abraham's life. And by the way, that test was not a test of sacrifice. That test was a test of faith. He's going to go on to clarify that down in Hebrews chapter 11. I've heard a lot of people talk about that passage and say, oh, boy, the Lord, uh, you know, Abraham must have loved the Lord because he was willing to give up his son to the Lord. That's not what was going on. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11 that when he offered Isaac, he offered him believing that God was able to raise him from the dead. This was not an offering of sacrifice. It was an offering of faith. And what Abraham was doing was this. God had promised to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to give you and Sarah a child, and that child, from that child I'm going to give a a, a promised seed, and they're going to be as the numbers of the stars in heaven and as the sand of the, the sea for their number and greatness, and there's going to be a whole nation come from you. God had made all these promises to Abraham. Abraham had trusted God. God had given him Isaac. And now, after all these years... God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, I want you to go and lay Isaac on an altar and sacrifice him to me. Now, Abraham had a choice at this point. He could either say, well, I guess God didn't mean what he said. Or he could say, I'm going to trust that God did mean what he said, and I'll trust that God will make a way regardless. That's what he was doing. When he offered Isaac on that altar, he wasn't hoping, or maybe he was hoping, he wasn't trusting that an angel would stop his hand nor was he trusting that, that Isaac uh, would uh, be unwilling to be offered or unwilling to be sacrificed, nor was he intending to give Isaac up forever. Here's what Abraham expected when he laid Isaac on that altar. If I kill him, God will have to raise him from the dead because at that time Isaac had no children, and God has promised me that from Isaac a great nation would come. Abraham was placing his faith in the Lord. And after he did that, the Lord said to Abraham, I will swear by myself that I will bless you. Now, think about this. God is speaking. It's his word. He's never broken his word. God did not have to make a pledge to Isaac. He didn't have to swear by himself for it to be true. uh, Or a pledge to Abraham, excuse me. He didn't have to do that to, to make it true. It was already true. But he pronounced it thus to give Abraham confidence in his word. Man, what a gracious God we have, that God knows our weakness and He is willing to work within the realm of our weakness that He might prove Himself strong and faithful. So this was a significant pledge because it came from God. It was uh, not only pronounced to be true, it was proved to be true. Uh, look at verse number 14 saying, Surely I will bless thee, uh, blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. Is there any question, look at verse 15, And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. Is there any question that that has become true? We know that it has. We know that even right now there's a Jewish nation, descendants from Isaac. We understand that God did keep his word. So for these Jewish individuals that were reading this, that were struggling because, you know, their family's trying to pull them back to the temple and their friends are trying to pull them back to the temple and they're struggling, they place their faith in Christ and they're feeling the oppressive weight of the difficulty and trials around them. Uh, Paul says, look at Abraham. Abraham trusted God and though it was not always easy and though he had to be willing to turn his back as it were on his own blood, God still proved himself faithful and God still was good in his life. It was a significant pledge, but notice it was a sacred pledge. How did God do this? Well, the Bible says He swore by Himself. And notice some of this explanation. Verse number 16, we see that this pledge was confirmed in an understandable way. It says, For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel confirmed it by an oath. I want you to notice two particular things about these verses that we've read. Notice, number one, this basic principle that's laid out. Men swear by the greater. There's a reason that uh, God, uh, or that Christ... Uh, prohibited the swearing by the temple and the swearing by the heavens and so on and so forth because men had gotten into a habit of swearing by these things so that they could secure the confidence and trust of another individual. Even today, you might hear somebody say something like this when they're trying to ensure someone's telling the truth. They might say something like, well, swear to me on your mother or swear to me on your child on their life. They never say, you know, swear to me on your car keys. They never say, you know, swear to me on your pair of old sneakers. You know why? Because the thought behind it is that they wouldn't care to give up their car keys. They wouldn't care to give up their old sneakers. They wouldn't care to give up those things. But you ask them to swear by something precious so that it means something to them. Now, you're not doing that necessarily to ensure that they're going to do the right thing. You're doing that to assure yourself that they're going to do the right thing. See, the truth is, they're either going to do what's right or they're not. They're either going to keep their word or they're not. And nothing that you can make them say will guarantee that they're going to do that. Why do we ask people to do that? We want the confidence that they're going to keep their word. In the same way, God was going to keep his word to Abraham no matter what. God had already promised him, I'm going to have Isaac make a great nation. That was true before Mount Moriah. That was true after Mount Moriah. There was nothing Abraham could have done to make that untrue, or Isaac could have done to make that untrue. God had sworn that. God is not a liar. He's immutable. God cannot lie. But out of concern and out of interest to Abraham's confidence, we see that it was confirmed in an unbreakable way. Verse 18, that by two immutable things, in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation. God said, I can swear by no greater, so I will swear by myself. In other words, God bound that promise to his very existence and character. Now, this is a beautiful truth, and and I wish I had time to go through all of it, because God has done this with every promise he's made that's unconditional. When God says to you and I, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved, then for God to break that promise would be for him to cease to be God. I gave this illustration in Sunday school. You know, the Bible says that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And that's how God created the world. He said, let there be, there was. The very way we know that God is not a liar is because the world is still spinning. The sky is still blue. The grass is still green. If God were to break his word, the very fabric of the universe would unravel. For it exists based upon the veracity and validity of that word. And so God looks at Abraham and says, Abraham, if you need confidence, if you need a word to encourage you, then I'll give you this word that I swear by myself that I will keep my word on this matter. He didn't have to, but he chose to. Now, that's true, you know, concerning our salvation. That was the very truth that I came to realize as a 15-year-old boy. Lord, I've done everything you've asked me to do. If I die and go to hell, it's your fault. And in that moment, I realized God can't break His Word or He wouldn't be God. God can't tell a lie or He couldn't be God. So if God's made the promise and if I've called upon Him, then I must be eternally saved by His grace. My salvation is directly vested in God's essence and character. You say, preacher, how could you believe you could never lose your salvation? Because I never had it in the first place. It came directly from the Word of God and the promise of God. And it's just as secure as God is on his throne. That's how confident I am that God will never throw me away. We see that this is a sacred pledge. But notice that it's a secure pledge or it's a securing pledge. Look at the end of verse number 18. What does that do for us? It says that we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. What is this pledge? This pledge to Abraham was that I'm going to keep my promise concerning Isaac. But the promise to us is that if we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd be saved. And that God will be faithful to us and that he'll not throw us away and that he'll never leave us nor forsake us, that he'll give us strength and he'll give us the the courage that we need day by day. And as such, because God has placed that promise, that secures for us our very position in Him. We notice what it is, but we notice where this pledge is. This is interesting. Verse 19, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. What is that within the veil? That within the veil is the presence of God. That within the veil is the throne of God. In the Old Testament, when the veil was up between the holy place and the holy of holies, back behind that veil in the holy of holies, that was where the mercy seat was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where the Shekinah glory of God would sit down. So stop and think about this for just a moment. Uh, We are anchored to the very presence of God. We're anchored to where His uh, the Ark of the Covenant is. You know, all through the Old Testament, the Ark was a picture of the presence of God. We're anchored to His presence. Not only are we anchored to His presence, but we're anchored to His power. That's where He sat down. That's where His throne was. But not only are we anchored to His power, that's where the mercy seat was. That's where the blood was presented. We're anchored to His promise. We can have confidence that we're not going to lose our salvation. We can have confidence that God's not going to turn around and throw us away. We can have confidence that our hope in Christ is well-placed because of where it's placed. I've got news for you. There's coming a day when the kingdoms of this world will fall to nothing and will be consolidated and become the kingdom of our God. There's coming a day when the world will be on fire. But boy, this is a beautiful truth. Can I share this with you and I'll be done? You know, if you were to go to Revelation chapter number 20, You would, uh, and you don't have to, but if you were to go there, you know what you'd find? You'd find at the end of Revelation chapter 20, we talked a little bit about it on Sunday morning, you'd find the great white throne judgment. And one of the things that's interesting when you go there, and I noticed it on Sunday uh, again, I've seen it before, but the Bible says, John said, I saw the dead, both small and great. Now, when he's speaking about those that are dead, he's not necessarily speaking about those that are spiritually dead, but he's speaking about any of any folks that are deceased, And if the dead, small and great, are there, that means this, that not only are the lost there being judged, but even us that know the Lord are there, not being judged, I'm not implying that, but even we'll be present at the great white throne judgment. Uh, We'll be there as witnesses. We'll be there as spectators. uh, We'll be there present. You say, how do you know that, preacher? Well, remember, where else would we be? The Bible says that heaven and earth fled away from the face of him that sat on that throne. You understand that that is when the earth, when Peter talked about, he says the elements shall melt with fervent heat, that heaven and earth shall, or that the heavens shall pass away. It's at that moment that the entire world and the heavens are going to be destroyed or renovated, whatever word you prefer, but are going to be cleansed and purified by fire and going to be remade in in glory and in perfection. That literally means this: when the world's on fire, you know where you and I'll be? We'll be at the throne of God in His presence. What a fitting description of the confidence we can have, spiritually speaking, right now. Though the world should melt, though the seas should catch on fire, though the stars should fall from heaven, our spiritual condition is tethered to God's own throne. For us to lose our spiritual condition in Christ, our state in Him, our status in Him, for us to lose that, literally God's throne would have to crumble. We see where it is, but we see why it is. Look at verse 20. The Bible says, "...whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek." Why is our hope there? Because Jesus is there. We've placed our faith in Him. We've given our salvation or or our soul to Him. we've, We've committed ourselves unto Him. And as such, we're His. We belong to Him. So wherever He's at, that's where we're at. Paul taught this truth in the book of Ephesians when he talked about how we're seated together with Christ in heavenly places. In other words, for us to lose our salvation or for God to throw us away, he'd have to throw Jesus away. Now, he used that word Melchizedek. He's going to get in in chapter 7 talking about that reality of Christ as our advocate on the right hand of the Father, the priesthood of Melchizedek. But he's closing out with this simple truth. For those that have placed their faith in Christ, that they need to have confidence and they need to continue to serve God and they don't need to waver. They need to continue to walk with God because their salvation is secured and settled forever and they can have confidence in the Lord that He'll not throw them away.